Welcome to Sitcom Geeks. My name is James Carey. I'm Dave Cohen. And here we are with episode, what is probably episode 38 by the time we actually edit this and push it out. And um, this is towards the end of 2016. So um, rather than look back and have to give our opinion on loads of other uh, comedy shows... Um, opinion other than how dare that person be more successful than me that we just thought we'd go through a few listener questions that I've actually been asked on Twitter that um, in no particular order and we'll just see where we get to mm-hmm. and um, here is the first question uh, I received what are the pitfalls of working out a series arc that's oh well um, I'm happy to answer that at this point because I'm uh, working on an idea at the moment that um, that has a little bit more uh, of a story to it and sitcoms generally don't have stories to them traditionally they didn't but they much more do now yeah and i and i think part of it is because uh now sitting through uh like for instance a series of homeland over uh, a period of two weeks or um orange is the new black or something and uh, you you get to watch like 15 hours 13 hours of tv mm. uh very quickly so you really get to see how a story is developing in in, in a drama uh and um the comedy drama like orange is the new black which i like very much um and it's just started me thinking well it would be great to have a sitcom that does actually have quite a big story around it um and this particular sitcom that we're working on is set in 1970 uh and so it kind of fits around the the, the news stories of the moment, really. Um, On the one hand, this is great because it's given us a great structure. Uh, On the other hand, when you're writing your sitcom episodes, you want each episode to be self-contained. And ideally, uh, you want to be able to say, well, we recorded all six episodes and we've edited them, and now we look at them, actually, episode four looks a lot better than... uh, That that should go at the uh, top, really. That should be the first episode, Um, which then might kind of put your historical reference mm. timetable out out of joint a bit. But, so that's, at this very early stage, that's a problem I'm finding. I think it's normal to now have a sort of gentle series arc. And in a way, I think it's partly because now drama has very much gone in that direction. Previously, you used to get episodes of Starsky and Hutch or whatever mm. it was, and there was no... It was just another episode of your favourite show, Magnum PI or whatever. Yep. There was no great o- overarching story. But now drama has gone that way. It's sort of... Whenever sitcoms just do something where every episode just happens in a vacuum with no relation to another episode, it feels a bit weird now. So, But it is difficult because you are then stymied by your series order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we, had a, we had sort of gentle stories on, on all three series of Bluestone. We tried not to, almost, but... Um, you then get pressure to, oh, couldn't episode six go first because that's the funniest? And you go, well, no, it can't now. Yeah. So I think we're slightly in a bit of a halfway house, which is why it can be a bit difficult and frustrating. There's a sitcom that I liked a lot, um, came out a few years ago, called uh, Dead Boss. Uh, Sharon Horgan and Holly Walsh uh, wrote that. And um, it was it was about... Uh, Sharon Horgan's character was basically framed for something, uh, some fraud, so she ends up in prison. Um, and um, so there was this, the uh, stories that were set in the prison, uh, but then there was this kind of whole other story going on at the time, which was sort of kind of uncovering the mysteries of the case. Um, and I, I, I really liked it, but the problem with that show, I felt, was that I was watching 
two distinct sitcoms in per yeah. per episode. And the the, the the scenes in the prison were great, and Sharon Horgan thinks she's brilliant, and um, they're always funny, and they, they were like sort of mini versions of, uh, you know, updated version of Porridge, and great. But then... Uh, the, the B plot was always out, out of the uh, prison, and then we're suddenly in this sort of place. And there's some great actors and some great performances and things, but it just felt like, uh, hang on, I, lo- I like being in the prison because it's yeah. funny here, and and uh, this story is developing, and Sharon Hawkins' character doesn't know what's happening. And well, that's and a, well, that kind of leads us on to the next question, which is, um, somebody says, how stuck are you with a character once you get started? which I know sounds like a bit of a leap, but actually mm. what you're describing there is it feels like that they'd created you know, on Dead Boss two shows mm. and one that you liked and one that you didn't like or one that didn't quite fit with the other. Yeah. And it feels like once you've started, you're kind of stuck with it. But actually, um, and that same goes with characters, but mm. we've mentioned before how on Parks and Rec, for example, they made six episodes at the start and Leslie Nope, who was the main character, it just kind of didn't quite work because mm-hmm. um, she seemed a bit stupid and the other characters didn't seem to like her very much or something. And actually, after six episodes, they started again. They didn't change her very much, but they changed the reactions of other characters to that one character. Right. And suddenly, they, the show just felt a bit different. Yeah. So, and, I, and I will happily recommend Parks and Rec to anyone, but, mm-hmm. and when I do that, I always tend to say, watch the first episode, don't bother with the next five, and then start season two. Yeah when it just sort of really starts to make sense and take off. Uh, Seinfeld is a good example. The first four episodes of Seinfeld, uh, and I think I don't think Elaine is in them, um, so there's the first four episodes of Seinfeld have this, the three the three guys. I think she is, but I think but I think Kramer is different. Yeah, Kramer is sort of the a bit whole, thick. The whole thing is, uh, and, and so many people say so many times, oh, I don't like Seinfeld. I couldn't get into it. Um, I said, where where did you start season one? You, you can't start with Seinfeld at season one. Um, you have to you have to kind of start at season three, I think, and 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 then watch to the end, and then go back, and you you'll understand why. Um, and 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 this was, I think, a show that was literally found found its feet on with with no audience watching. But as they wrote each episode, they worked. Each episode was a kind of pilot for the next episode, mm. pretty much, really. So by the time they got to kind of middle of. Uh, um, series two, uh, or by about sort of epi- I think by about episode eight or nine of, mm. of the first season. Well, the first season was about two seasons mm. anyway. So they 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 were oh, all right, oh this is what it is mm. really. But it is it is difficult once you're you are stuck with the character for a series, and if you are lucky enough to get another series, you can do something about it. I mean, they had that problem on Black Adder, right. even though they made a pilot, they then made a series. Mm-hmm. which was the first series which was The Black Adder yeah. where Black Adder was um, feckless and cowardly mm-hmm. and Baldrick was the smart one yeah. and now it's you go back to it and it's almost unwatchable not because mm-hmm. it's bad but because it just doesn't seem to be the Black Adder that everyone seems to remember Black Adder is yeah. really and so they, but they got a second series thanks I think mainly to Michael Grade or at least he's claiming credit for it as executives tend to and um, they stuck it in a studio and they just 
focused it, you know, and they got very lucky with casting Miranda Richardson, mm. um, who was just amazing. Well, of course, the huge difference as well was uh, plus Ben Elton. Yes, who wasn't exactly. Involved in the, the first, the first series of Black Adam was very much the uh, what the this is about the Richard Curtis Rowan Atkinson. Uh, axis, I suppose, mm. axis of comedy, um, and that they they'd worked together for years on various things, and through not the nine o'clock uh, news, and so and very funny live stuff. Yeah. I think if you watch Ron Atkinson live, the original yeah. one, that's yes. Ron Atkinson and well, Richard Curtis. Yeah. It's very funny. Show that I saw at least eighteen times when it was on in the same venue as I was on in Edinburgh. I just kept going back and watching that show again and again. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's that that that's. That's kind of where that comes from, really, and and then Ben Elton coming in really just completely uh, changes it, and Ben Eltonifies yeah. it, I suppose. So, <clears throat> if you're still at the writing stage, though, you you can change anything you want. Mm. So, if you're listening to this and you're trying to get into sitcom, you're developing a sitcom, you're not stuck with your character. You can completely change it. The person that reads your script has no idea that this is the 18th draft, which bears no relation to the first draft. So there is always hope whilst it's still only on the page. But once you're up and running, if you get a second series, that's great. You can fix um, things. And I would say that the main aim of a first series is to get a second series where you get to fix everything. Although the second series gets is often famously tricky, but for, for other reasons. Um, and also to, be, to also to be realistic, whatever level you're at, whether you're starting out or you're someone who's had some success and uh, you're you're writing a new, coming up with a new idea, um, to to work back even more, the script you're writing now is to persuade a producer to commission you to write a, another script. Mm. So uh, you've you've actually you're actually only writing this one script at this point, mm. I think. And so yeah, you can change it as much as you like, but make sure. Make sure whatever's working, whatever's bringing the funny stuff in for you is what, what you're kind of concentrating on. And also, it depends on, again, what stage is. Your character becomes a character once you've, got, once you've cast it. So again, going back to Bluestone um, as an example, not because it was particularly brilliant, but because in our minds we had, um, as our hero, Captain Nick Medhurst, we had actually someone who was probably a grammar school boy who'd done good and was sort of fairly middle of the road in terms of class, and um, and that Simon, the sergeant character, was a, was somebody who sort of probably sees that they should have gone to Santos because they went to a public school and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the funniest guy we saw for the part of Nick was Ollie Chris, who just played him as much more, you know, RP, mm-hmm. um, public school, and that fitted with the captain fine. And our funniest guy we saw for Simon was um, was Stephen White, who played it as a guy from Essex, who you know was very frustrated with um, with life and his sort of situation in it. And those characters took on a life of their own, and we were very happy to write for those characters, but they weren't quite what we planned. Yeah. And that's not to say that that what we'd planned would have been bad or good or anything or better. It's just different. Mm. So these characters do take on a life of their yeah. own. And it's, in a sense, you have to factor in the fact that once a play, once your sitcom has been cast, you're going to have to write it again. Yeah. So that the script is now being, t- it's almost like making a suit mm. where you, you make a suit, you measure up, and then you go back for a second fitting where you just pull everything in a little bit yeah. and nip it and tuck it here and there. And that's what you're doing once you've cast it. You just need to then nip it and tuck it and bring it in here, mm. take it out there. 
that's how I think of it anyway. Well, remembering uh, my family, which was uh, all set to go with uh, uh, Jim Carter and Imelda Staunton as as the um, husband and wife, the real life husband and wife, um, and then two weeks before filming, I think it was, and one of them got some huge Hollywood thing that they could not turn down. So that was it, and they both uh, pulled out, and at the last minute. Um, they got Robert Lindsay and Zoe Wanamaker to do it. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, as James says, it's, mm. that it's down to your taste what you think mm. about my family, but the fact it, was... It that, ran that, for 100 shows. Yes, that's going to be a very, very different show mm. with those two compared to Jim... And, and all those months that have gone into the work mm. with Jim Carter and Melda Staunton, suddenly, oh, ah, it's not <clears> them anymore. So, yeah that's another way that your show can yeah. change and it's kind of out of your hands to some yeah. extent. I mean, and then even once you've shot it, the, the edit mm. makes another difference again, although these, these differences become sort of more marginal the later mm. you leave it. These are <clears throat> important points to bear in mind when you've written your script and you think this is so brilliant, this is the best it can ever be and I'm really, really proud of it, even if that's true. And you but, have to believe it's true, yeah. otherwise you haven't finished... Yeah, then uh, there are so many things that happen along the way from the thing that you've written to the thing going out on telly um, that are totally out of your hands. Yeah. Um, Them's the rules, I'm afraid. Here's another one. Um, Where do you stand on breaking the fourth wall? It seems to happen a lot in sitcoms recently. Does it engage an audience more? That's a good Mm -hmm. question. Yeah, well... I mean, I I had a hand in uh, the first two series of Miranda, which blatantly broke the fourth wall I've always loved the breaking of the fourth wall um, one of my favourite shows growing up was Moonlighting mm-hmm. which very occasionally broke the fourth wall but yeah. did it beautifully yeah. um, I used to, used to watch quite enjoy watching Lovejoy and he used to talk to camera at the start yeah. of an episode occasionally um, Allo Allo yeah. René Artois going back to the series arc yeah. partly because when they did a series of of 26 episodes I think Mm -hmm. they were trying to get it on in America and they did a big long run which got cancelled after six but they kept making them over here the plot got so convoluted that they started each episode with Rene to camera explaining where they were in the plot and actually that that worked pretty well so it it can be done obviously Mrs Brown is breaking the fourth wall as well in a slightly different way Mm. um, in a sort of a postmodern deconstructed kind of way whereas Miranda was breaking the fourth wall in a more of a inviting you into her life kind of way. Right. So I think maybe, hmm. firstly, it's probably a bit of a law of diminishing returns in terms of if you keep doing it in every episode, uh, you're going to struggle to make, make the most of it. But secondly, if you know exactly why you're doing it, I think it can work. And I guess we're also seeing it with regard to like Parks and Rec, mm-hmm. which, is, which only really exists because of The Office. And yeah. the way the office has people talking directly to camera. Yeah. There is now a new narrative and a new way in which you have people talking to camera in a way in which you think, well, logically, if this was really a documentary, that could never happen. Yeah. This is this is not possible. Modern family. Modern family in particular, yeah. you just think, well, that's just not that yeah. doesn't work. But now we're at a stage where that doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't know why it doesn't matter, but it just mm. doesn't, so you can make the most of it. I have a, I have a theory, actually, that it, uh, and it may have begun even earlier, <clears throat> but uh, a lot of Shakespeare plays have the equivalent of the breaking of the fourth wall, and uh, Merchant of Venice is a, is a good example that people don't... Uh, when, you say, uh, when you see in complete works of Shakespeare, the Merchant of Venice, a comedy. A comedy? 
version of Venice. That's not a comedy. Um, well, it was then. And uh, there's, there's, there's these two comedy characters, as the odd couple, um, who kind of... Uh, various points in The Merchant of Venice, they come on for a bit of light relief. And they are effectively um, the kind of... They, they, they tell a little bit of a story, they've got a little bit of plot of their own, but they're, they're pretty much kind of breaking out of this whole uh, trial big thing going on in uh, in Venice, this whole whatever. And, and they, they've got that little bit. Twelfth Night is another one where you get these just characters who seem to break out of the actual... Yeah. Uh, story, so, so it's I mean, of, that's sort of what is, it, is, really. is that what a soliloquy is almost? I guess so, yeah. I mean, when you've got, yeah. is it, no, you've got Hamlet talking, uh, oh, well, you've got Macbeth as well, talking well, think, about his, his tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow yeah. speech. It's sort of on it. That's you'll get, you'll get something like where, it, where, you know, the writer is so at the peak of their power, so you'll get something like King Lear, where the jester character is, is he, he, he and the king have like a lot of scenes together, and so you get, rather than it being a kind of breaking out, breaking and clumsily breaking out and doing a scene, it's almost like his his bits that are going out to the audience, and it's, it's almost like the king's escaping from his torment yeah. as much as the audience are escaping from the yeah. story. So, uh, but I, I may be wrong. I'm not a I'm not no, a I think it's a, expert, I, no, I, I, I buy that from what you know my my sort of GCSE based knowledge of Shakespeare. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I think this kind of slightly overlaps with how how we feel about narration as well because mm. that is also a breaking of the fourth wall and that can work yeah. um, as long as you make the most of it and as long as you're doing stuff with it that you couldn't do if you didn't have it yeah. one thing that narration gives you is it gives you the ability to motor on plots really quickly yeah. um, which you get in Arrested Development for example yeah. mm-hmm. that, that thing gives you a real um, supercharging of plot which I think works really well. Apologies for the background noise, by the way. There's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, it's nearly um, lunchtime. It's nearly so lunchtime, and we're in the office with a glass wall. Yeah. The second thing is um, that the the narration also gives you a chance to do jokes. For example, mm-hmm. the narrator says one thing, and yet we see another, or we get mm-hmm. to see people's motiv- we get to hear people's motivations or intentions again, which Arrested Development does uh, mm-hmm. very well. Yeah. I think it works possibly when you're setting stuff in the past with historic... I mean, the Goldbergs is a show I absolutely love, and that uses narration. I think it uses it very well. Yeah. Um, again, it uses it very efficiently. It doesn't overuse it. Um, it kind of reminds you of the Wonder Years as well, obviously, which yeah. has... That felt like the first mm. the first of the genre, really, that uh, mm. uh, in, in, in TV. But also going back in terms of things like The Office, I think uh, Spinal Tap, the movie, is the... Um, is the kind of starting point for a lot of, uh, and it, it and it's partly as well stuff that comes out of improvisation, mm. and so uh, that's again that that's not necessarily the the, the, the nuts and bolts mm. of writing a script. So um, that that takes you out that rockumentary as a, yeah. as where that word originated in Spinal Tap. Yeah, uh, and let's uh, boogie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that scene where he uh, says a rockumentary, if you yeah, will, yeah, or something yeah, like that. That's right. He tries to fold yeah. his arms and somehow right. doesn't yeah. quite manage yeah. to do it as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. It's a very memorable scene. Mm. Um, I think the final thing to say on breaking the fourth wall is that um, if you're using it to deconstruct the genre, as it were, I think again you need to be quite careful because the audience's a mainstream audience's capacity for that is not as great as you might want it to be. 
So, for example, a show which really broke the fourth wall, like the Gary Shandling show, yeah, um, which was the sick the, the, the sitcom version, which is like a parody of sitcoms almost. Yeah. That stuff works fine, but it tends not to work in front of a mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. You do get some of that, obviously, with Mrs. Brown deconstructing it, but it's quite sparingly used, I think, in yeah. Mrs. Brown. Mm-hmm. And the audience really do want to believe in the false narrative that you're creating. They do want to believe in the characters. Yeah. And if you right. continually punish them for doing that, there mm-hmm. will come a point where they won't believe you any longer. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you look at the sort of the, the ultimate deconstructionist uh, comedian Stuart Lee and you watch a, a show of his where he sort of beautifully deconstructs his uh, two minute routine over a half hour mm. um, and it is uh, of its kind it is wonderful and brilliant uh, and you know and won yeah. loads and loads of awards and maybe gets three or four hundred thousand viewers yeah. maximum it's, yeah, yeah it's sort of BBC two ten o'clock stuff rather yeah. than BBC one eight thirty yeah. stuff so know who your audience is and how they're going to relate to it I would say um, this might be the last question before we have to split. Um, it's a bit of a $64,000 question, I think. How do you know when something's funny? Not just funny to you, but will actually make others laugh. Well, the, the first thing that I would say is if you're starting out as a writer and you're, you're on your own, it's really worth thinking about writing with one other person. And comedy is, what, uh, is one of the few genres where people write together and you know so we know so many kind of successful writing partnerships you know clement Lafrenet, yes, you Donald just don't Simpson. get in drama do you no. drama is always the sole voice person. and there, there, there is a ov- very very obvious reason for that at the start when you're sitting at home and you're writing and, and you don't know and the, the, the most the, the most successful writers and comedians they don't know you don't know when a joke's funny until uh, if you're a performer you you go out and you try the line and if the audience laugh that line's worked. If they don't laugh, you go away and you try it again and you rewrite it and you rewrite. But if you're working with one other person um, who hopefully isn't somebody who just sort of finds everything you say hilariously funny, um, but you know, you basically, you say your thing. If you persuaded that person to laugh, then that's, you've made a person laugh. I'm not saying therefore you've found the secret of your comedy, but you've made one more person laugh than you have when you're sitting it's almost like it's a it's it's a pretty decent filter from the very start isn't it yeah Um, that if there are two of you you know it it was a rule I think that um, going back to Blackadder that um, Ben Elton and Richard Curtis had whereby they would swap discs they would write an episode they would swap floppy discs everyone for teenagers Mm. there and um, they would rewrite each other's scripts and if they deleted a joke the other one wouldn't ever put it back in or wouldn't even ask why it's been deleted. You would just move on. So that you've got jokes that two of you are both confident in. I would find that when I was writing with Richard, I know David, you've written with people over the years. Sometimes you really do fight for a joke. I tend to give in a little bit easily uh, to my writing partner, Richard, who is a bit more sure of himself sometimes. Um, But occasionally... um, I'll defend a joke to the hilt and I'll win him round. But quite often, I normally discover that if we chuck it and get one that we're both happy with, that the joke is probably better. It's almost certainly not worse. Yeah. And I think you need to trust your own instincts there that you are going to come up with funny material. Because I think sometimes you cling on to a joke that you think is funny because you haven't got anything else. And I think once you get a bit more experienced, you realise that, that this is a process, that this is a skill 
rather than yeah. a fixed number of jokes that you've got to eke out over the course of your career. But if, if you are writing on your own and, uh, you know, the, the, the answer is it's, it's, it's almost impossible to know until, I mean, you, you, you've got an idea, but until you can get somebody, I mean, re- read the stuff out to yourself, first of all. Mm. Uh, if you can get a bunch of people together, part of people who've got some kind of modicum of, of ability at performing, um, you know, you don't need uh, Oscar winning actors or anything but just just get a bunch of people reading out your script and uh, you know that's always an interesting uh, yeah. <laughs> interesting when it happens you go ah oh, hang on I thought that was funny um, and so that that's it, it, it is very very hard to find out and maybe sometimes someone can take the line that you wrote and make it sound hilarious and someone else will do it and mm. it doesn't work so there is no there, I'm afraid there's no magic uh, answer to that yeah. question well I think the, the other the, the, there are other factors here one is this is why when I almost every sitcom I've done with the exception of Bluestone has been in front of an audience and um, for all my radio sitcoms everything I've done there and when I've written episodes of um, My Family and My Hero and uh, Citizen Khan um you're thinking to yourself, is this going to make a room full of 300 people laugh? Hmm. Because if it's not, then I'm not doing my job. And that really does focus your mind yeah. and, and you don't give yourself that free pass right. that yeah. you might otherwise do. Yeah. So it's just a question of um, trusting your instincts, but also being pretty hard on yourself. Hmm. And it does come with experience. But very often, you, you whenever, whenever you look at sort of um, notes and you listen to DVD commentary and when you hear writers talk about stuff, they say, I don't know why I thought that was funny. I, I now realise it wasn't. Or one of my favourite books um, by William Goldman, who obviously doesn't hasn't got anything to prove in terms of comedy because he wrote The Princess Bride. Mm. Um, in his book, his second book about screenwriting, he tells a story about his romantic comedy about um, people trying to find a bottle of wine called mm. The Year of the Comet. Right. And he's writing this whole thing just saying, yes, I know now how ridiculous this whole thing was and that when it opened, it just didn't do very well at the box office. You know, they don't want to see your movie, Mr. Goldman. He sort of realised, but you can think something is funny for a long time and then realise that it isn't. But then sometimes you back yourself and it is. And sometimes... You know, the audience laugh uproariously at something that you didn't even think was a joke. Well, yeah. yeah. If if <clears throat> if there was some kind of formula or system, we would all be successful, mm. um, and we would every sitcom would be hilarious. Yeah. But unfortunately, we know that that is very much not the case. Mm. And uh, yes, uh, certainly <clears throat> several around, or have been several around, to prove that case. Yes, but, indeed. But nobody goes out to make a unfunny sitcom you no. know, everybody's trying their hardest people do they think, think that don't they people think that this how did this fun. rubbish get on my yeah. TV what, just... what, what information did they have on the commissioners to make yeah. sure that this got on TV mm. anyway hopefully there's some useful uh, ground covered there over the course of the last uh, 20 odd minutes if you want us to talk about stuff that we haven't talked about yet then send us an email you can do that uh, by emailing sitcomgeeks at gmail.com like us on Facebook ask us some questions via that Follow Dave on Twitter at Cohen Dave. I'm Sitcom Geek. And otherwise, we shall speak to you again. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.